Welcome to the Beyond Your Money podcast with Mike Dukovich, financial advisor and retirement income certified professional with RBC Wealth Management. Join us as we share the tools and insight that can help you take control of your money and your life. Because we believe life's greatest returns are realized when you invest beyond your money. You know you should be saving and investing for the future. But how do you set priorities? What should be the first place you put your money? And what can wait? Welcome back to the Beyond Your Money podcast with Mike Dukovich of RBC Wealth Management. I'm Patrice Sikora. In this episode, Mike goes through his financial flowchart to offer guidelines on what to fund when. Mike, this is your podcast, Beyond Your Money, and it's designed to help listeners take control. So explain how your financial flowchart will help them to do that. Well, Patrice, when I am working with a client or a prospect, or even if it's just a, a loved one, a friend, a neighbor, or a family member that's considering starting an investment plan, perhaps they're young professionals and they have just gotten their first discretionary dollar. It's the first time in their career that they have more money in their pocket than they have bills. Yeah. Or it's someone later on in life that perhaps has had a late start and, and needs or finally realizes that they should start saving for retirement. The question becomes, what is the optimal order that I should be using with regards to putting this money away? Right. The, the question refers to what I call the financial flow chart. And, and while the details will ultimately depend on their own unique situation and circumstances, the basic concepts and strategies are very important to understand and they're almost universal. When I, when I get asked this question, where should I put this money? The first thing that I, I ask a client or a prospect is, do you know what your budget looks like? Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the foundation. We first need to know how much money is coming in, whether that's from your job or, or kind of the, the side hustle. Some people have a lot of these side income plays. Perhaps it's social security or pension, whatever that income is coming in, we need to know that. Then obviously, we need to know what you're spending. We need to know what your fixed bills are, what your discretionary bills might look like, what you're spending roughly on food and and gasoline and clothing and things like that. We need to have an idea of that rough budget, that rough monthly cash flow, we call it. And let me me just say, I'll bet that most of your new clients don't have a budget. You're right. You know, it seems like such a basic financial planning 101 type topic, but you know, this isn't being taught in high school. This isn't being taught in college. It really should be. I'm a huge proponent of, I call it the finance 101 Mm -hmm. class that should be taught in high school, but we're just not getting it. So what I'm finding is a lot of young professionals, when they're starting their careers, they really have no idea what a budget even means or what saving means. Or or I've ran into young kids in their early 20s that don't even know how to write a check. What? It's unfortunate. (laughs) Yeah, it's unfortunate that we're just not getting this, this basic financial education out there. And so ultimately, the first part of this conversation is let's figure out what your budget is. Let's figure out what you're spending. And, and when I'm working with a client, I, I try to help them break down their budget into basically three different categories, their needs, their wants, and their wishes. Mm. Okay, And this range true from everyone who's you know from 20 to 80. It does not matter how old you are. You, you have these same three categories. So your needs would be your, your simple 
things like rent or mortgage payments, gas, electric, water bills, that sort of thing. Also, food, gasoline, clothing, that, all the basic necessities that you can't live without. That would obviously fall into the needs category. Then you have your wants category. Okay, that would be things that you, if you have extra money at the end of the month, that's what you would like to do. That's going out to dinner, that's going to the movies or to the ball game, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And then finally, you have your third category, your wishes. These are things that you would like to do if you have extra money, but you don't necessarily need. And, and it's more of a it's more of a reward. So this would be things like vacations or or gifts to yourself or or buying those luxury items. Those would be in the wishes category. I'll bet you that's a big chunk of the budget too. It, and for some people, it can be right. You know, and and we have to sometimes reel people back in to make sure that the things that are in their needs category. Well, that actually that sounds more like a, a want or a wish to me. So let's push that out a little bit further. And and when you push it out a little bit further, from needs to wants, or and and then ultimately to wishes, what you're doing is you're just moving that down the line, as far as the the importance of, of that outflow, the importance of that, of that cash outflow in your budget. When we're then creating the cash flow analysis, we want to make sure that the money coming in covers all of your needs, obviously, right? And if right. we have extra money left over, then we start addressing the wants and the wishes. Okay. So with that, once we have the budget, we can then discuss, okay, after your needs and wants and wishes are covered and you're saving for the various things that you need or want or wish for, then where do I start investing? What do I start doing with that extra dollar? And and in which order should I put it in? The very first thing that you want to consider, and this also kind of goes into the budget situation, but you want to make sure that you're covering at least the minimum debt payments that you have outstanding. So that would be things like your mortgage or your car payments, Certainly, you know, any type of loans or credit cards, you want to make sure at the bare minimum that you're paying that minimum payment. Seems pretty intuitive, right? If you right, have debt, right. you, you need to pay your bill. A lot of people think that they should be paying a lot more towards certain bills. And, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But ultimately, the first thing you need to do is you want to make sure that you're covering that minimum payment. Okay. Once you're done with that, once you've covered all your minimum payments, then we move into the next phase of the financial flow chart. And that's your short-term emergency account. I, some, I sometimes refer to this as your, your ER account, your rainy day account. Mm-hmm. Okay. And by short-term, I'm talking about one month. You want to have at least one month worth of living expenses stashed away for that rainy day. Okay. And this is the first category of the emergency account. There, there's another one coming down the line. Okay. But now hang on, hang on a second. So this is not part of the budget. This is something else? That's correct. You, you oh. got your budget figured out. And so, you know, the budget's very important actually, because you know how much you need to spend month to month on your needs. Right. You take a month, a, a, a full month of that budget need and you just stash it away. Okay. A lot of people ask me, you know, where to keep this? Historically, you keep it in your savings account, your checking account, your money markets, things of that nature. Obviously, we're in a very, very low interest rate environment, have been for a long time. And, and, there's really no end in sight to that low interest rate environment. So I always urge people to remember that your emergency account, especially the short-term emergency account is considered, I call it dead money. You're not making a whole lot on this, 
But more importantly, you know it's there. You know it's accessible. You know it's not going to fluctuate with the market moves. And so it's very important that your emergency account is always there for if and when you should need it. Okay. Okay. So again, that's one month worth of living expenses. Once you have filled that bucket, and that's a great analogy. We're going to think about that. If you want to visualize this financial flow chart, think of it almost as, as a pyramid of buckets. Once you've filled your top bucket, it overflows into the next bucket and then it overflows into the next one. And that's kind of a good way of visualizing this. So once you have filled your short-term emergency account bucket, then we move into your employer-sponsored retirement plans. And specifically, those that carry an employer match. So what I'm referring to here are, are your 401k programs, your 403b programs, your, your simple IRA programs, your qualified retirement accounts at work that offer you an employer match. What if there is no employer match? Well, we is will get that to important? that. That's a, yeah, no, that's a great question. But the, the key with this bucket that we're filling is the employer match, right? We want to make sure that we put in as much as you need to at a minimum to capture their full match. And so what we'll see out there with a lot of 401ks is there's kind of incentive programs, savings incentives that say, well, Mr. Employee, Mrs. Employee, if you put in 3%, we'll put in 3%. Or if you put in 6%, we'll give you 50% 50 of your your, uh, contribution. So we'll give you 3%. Okay. You want to find out what those employer contribution matches look like, what the rules are. And at a bare minimum, you want to put that amount of money in there. You want to fill that bucket. Okay. You want to make sure that we capture the full employer match because the way I describe it to folks, it's, it's free money. If you think about it, Mm -hmm. if you, if you put in three and you get three from your your employer, you just made a risk-free 100% return on your money, on your investment. There's nothing else out there that's like that. So not these you know, days, no. Absolutely not. And it, you know, if someone passed you on the street and said, "Well, if you you know save ten dollars for yourself, I'll add ten dollars to your bucket." Right. You know, you would obviously take that, right? And so you want to make sure that you capture and receive the full employer match. Put whatever you need to, to to get that match. Once you're done with that, once that bucket is filled, then you take a step back and, and continue to move down the financial flow chart. Mm-hmm. The next bucket that I would look to fill is for some people, they have a what's called a high deductible health plan. And if you have that, you typically have an HSA accompanying it, a health savings account. And usually those health savings accounts are also accounts where the employer might provide a match. And if that's the case, same thing. You want to put in the minimum that you need to, to capture their full match. So you're probably sensing a theme here. If there's... If there's <laughs> If there's free money from your employer, you need to get it. You, you don't want to leave that out on the table. So first with the, with the 401k or the qualified retirement plan, then with the HSA. Once you've covered that full match, then we, again, we continue down the flow chart. And the next thing that we're going to look at is high interest debt. And, and the high interest is very important. A lot of people out there are, I, I use the term allergic to debt. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so people that carry debt or have debt just want to get rid of it. That's the first thing that they want to do. They want to put all of their discretionary income towards it to pay it off and be quote unquote debt free. Well, in reality, when we're looking at the math, especially in low interest rate environments, there, there, there's other considerations at play. 
there are things that I consider good debt and there are things that I consider bad debt. Okay. Bad debt. Go ahead. Bad debt would be your, your, your high interest debt. Okay. Things like credit cards. You know, a lot of credit cards are 14.99% a year or 19.99 or 25.99. You know, they're huge numbers, huge percentage points that are eating away at your, at your, at your worth. And so if you have those high interest debts, you want to pay those off. There's various ways of paying off debt. I believe in, in, in something that's called the snowball payoff, where you basically list your, your debts from the highest interest rate to the lowest interest rate. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously, you're paying the minimum, amount, your, the, the minimum payments on all of them, right? That's one of the first buckets we talked about. But if you have extra dollars and you have these high interest debts, you put your extra dollars towards the highest. And once that high, highest interest rate is paid off, then you put every dollar that you are paying towards it and you just move it down the line to the next highest. And you do so on and so forth. And ultimately, it's kind of like a snowball gaining momentum going down the hill. And ultimately, when you get you know towards the lower end of the debt spectrum, you have a lot of money going towards it. And so you can really start paying off debt quickly with that type of strategy. Now, Mike, quick question. For some people, they may not know where to go look and find out what the interest rate is on their credit card payment. You know what? That should be something that people know, and yeah. it, they but they don't. You're right. You know, a lot of the a lot of the credit card companies, because of various law changes over the last decade or so, stemming from you know really the the financial crisis in 2008, are now required to list the APR or, or the interest rate that you're being charged on the statements. So that's a good place to start. You can also find it on on the website on that credit card's website, or you just simply call. What I've also found kind of along that same line is a lot of people don't know what debt they have outstanding. Some people forget that they have this credit card or that credit card, and that's that's obviously not good either. But don't so they you, get the bill every month? Sometimes they do. And and sometimes, you know, perhaps if they're, you know, not carrying a, a monthly charge, then you know, they don't. It's it's always important to have an idea of what you have out there. You can get those lists from credit reporting agency, and, and that's always a good rule of thumb. Once a year, get your free credit report, make sure that everything matches up with what you think is out there. And if you see that rogue account that you haven't used in several years, it might make sense to consider closing it. Not to get on a tangent, but with regards to that, when you close accounts, just like when you open them, that does affect your credit score as well. Mm -hmm. So you, you always want to make sure that you're doing the right thing. And if you ever have questions about if I should close this or if I should open another one, probably makes sense to consult your your financial advisor before doing it because there are things that you think might be helping your credit when in reality, it might be a detriment. You always want to know what you have and what kind of interest you're paying. This high interest debt is is the urgent matter. Okay. And and so ultimately the question is, what is a high interest debt? And, And obviously this depends on what the interest rate environment is at the current time in which you're doing this. For the sake of the discussion in this low interest rate environment, I have put the bogey as far as good debt versus bad debt right around 6%, give or take. So oh, wow. if you're just looking for an earmark, anything above 6 or so percent is debt that I would like to get rid of faster. Certainly if it's 9, 10. That's every credit card I can think of. Uh, most of them. Yep, absolutely. Credit cards are <laughs> typically bad debt. Credit cards are around to, to make your life more convenient. And obviously banks are going to lend you money. 
at a high interest rate because that's how they make money. So if you're dealing with a credit card, the best advice I can give is pretty intuitive. You pay it off every month. (laughs) Again, very basic, very finance 101, but you're not being taught this in high school. So someone has to teach you at some point. If you have a credit card, it's a great way of having convenience. You don't have to carry cash. It's a great way of, of making larger purchases. A lot of the cards now carry these cashbacks or the incentive programs, which is great. But the important thing is if you're going to carry a credit card, you want to pay it off every month because you do not want to carry a balance and then get hit with that interest. Right. You don't want to do that. There are some cards out there that have the low interest rate, but most credit cards pay them off every month and you'll be fine. If you run into, again, the debt that's 10, 11 plus, or the credit card type debt, you want to pay that off as fast as you can. That five, six, seven range, as far as interest or debt payments, that's kind of in the in the in the middle zone. We can talk about that and kind of take it case to case. But if you have what I'll consider the good debt, the the less than five, the less than six, you know, we're talking right now about mortgages right around the three percent range or car loans in the two to three to four range. When you have debt that's in those lower single digits. I consider that good debt. And and here's why. If you have a discretionary dollar that you could theoretically put into a long-term investment, or you could pay off this good debt, this low interest debt, you have to consider basically the time value of money. What could that extra dollar, what, what could that do in the market over a long period of time? Now, we all know, and and you know, past performance is not indicative of future results. We all know that. However, you know, the long-term performance of the stock market is on average, you know, eight, nine percent over time. Mm-hmm. And so theoretically, if that extra dollar went to an investment for a long period of time, that's what you could expect to make on average. Whereas if you paid off that debt, basically you're making whatever that debt interest was, two, three, four percent. Obviously, you would rather have your dollar making that eight, nine percent on average a year over time versus making 3% on paying extra debt off. It's just the math makes sense to invest. Here's the other kicker. If you invest your dollar into a, into a portfolio that's geared for long-term growth and you change your mind or for whatever reason, life changes and you have to pay that debt off, you can always sell your investment and pay the debt off down the line. You can always play that card later. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you pay that low interest debt, and then down the line, change your mind. You can't obviously say, wow, I want to go back three years ago and take that extra dollar and invest it. (laughs) You can't reverse it, but you can always sell investments to pay debt off down the line and play that card later. So it's very important that if you have the low interest debt that you really analyze things carefully and and kind of look to see, well, what could I expect to make over time in the investment world? Mm -hmm. So going back to the financial flow chart, pay off that high interest rate debt first, pay off the bad debt first. And we're going to save the good debt discussion for for later here. The next bucket that we're filling up is the long-term emergency bucket. Okay. So if you remember, we already filled up the short-term, the one month. Right. Okay. The long-term bucket is what I consider in that two to six month range. And, And the book, if you go by the book, the financial planning book, so to speak, you want to have anywhere from six to 12 months worth of living expenses stashed away into something that's, you know, quote unquote, risk-free. However, in this very low interest rate environment, again, this money that you're stashing away in these risk-free type of investments isn't really paying you anything. It's dead money again. 
And so when I'm looking to have that kind of secondary long-term emergency bucket, I'm usually looking for my young professionals between two to three months. And, and here's why. One, I know that you know, the risk-free investments where this money is going to be held, aren't, one is dead money. It's not making anything. Right. Yeah. Whereas in the 80s, these savings accounts, you, you were getting eight, nine, 10 plus percent just having the money in the bank. So it was a lot more of a, an attractive vehicle for stashing this money away. You're just not getting that right now. If that changes, this advice will change, obviously. The other kicker is with my young professionals these days, it more than likely won't take you six to 12 months to find another job. You know, that's the other that's kicker point. here. Yeah, that's a very good point. There's this gig economy. Is that part of what you're thinking of? Absolutely, right? And, and a lot of my young professionals are either, they always have their resume fresh and ready to go. All, uh, people are changing jobs a lot more fre frequently now. They're moving firms left and right. And so usually with my young professionals, you probably have your next job already lined up or a headhunter is already contacting you. You know, in the old days, if you lost your job, it might take you six to 12 months in a bad job market to, to find that job. Whereas now you probably don't need that, that amount of time. So I think for me personally, it's my opinion, you don't need that much money, that six to 12 months sitting in what I call dead money, because you should find another job a lot quicker right. than you used to. Okay. So again, Two to six months is the target. I, for my young professionals, two to three is probably uh, uh, more likely. Again, where do you keep this money? This unfortunately has to stay in that savings or money market where you're not making a whole lot. But again, you want to make sure that it's there. Okay, mm -hmm. you, you you don't want this money in the market because God forbid you need it, and the market's on a roller coaster ride on the downside, and it's it's not all there. So you want to keep it in the safer investments. Okay, once that long term emergency bucket is is full. Then we're going to go back to the debt. We're going to go into what I call the moderate interest debt. So that, again, that's that five, six, seven range where it might make sense to pay it off quicker. It might make sense to put the money towards an investment, a long-term investment. We would have that discussion. We would analyze things, make sure that we understand what it would do for the cash flow and the long-term plan. And then ultimately, we may decide to pay it off using that 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 snowball payoff. Right. Uh, method that we talked about, or we might we might decide to go into the next bucket and take that extra dollar and roll it into the next bucket, which is maxing out retirement or perhaps putting money into a non-qualified investment. And let's talk about both. Hmm. So we already put the minimum amount into our retirement account to capture that full employer match. Now, there, there's a lot more money that you could probably put in. Right now, the, the max is around 19500 There's also a catch-up provision for anyone that's over right. 50. If you are getting close to retirement or, or nearing retirement or, or your, your goal is just to save more for retirement, then you want to take that extra dollar and max that out. You want to take money out of your paycheck, put it towards the 401k or the 403b and max out that retirement plan. If you're younger, if you're a young professional and retirement is so far into the future, you can't even you know fathom it, right? Okay. One of the things I also consider and will walk through with a client, and again, this is case by case. Every, every situation is unique, but perhaps rather than maxing out your retirement plan, we may consider taking that extra dollar and opening up what's called a non-qualified account or a brokerage account, whether that's an individual brokerage account or a joint brokerage account if you're, if you're married. 
The idea here is you're saving, which is good. But if you're in a non-qualified account, you can access this money. You can access this investment if you needed it in the short term, pre-retirement. Right. Okay. So for my young professionals, more than likely, you're, you're not living in the house that you're going to live in forever. Your family may be growing. You may have extra bills coming up. You may have job or, or career changes that are coming. And, and usually all those different life scenarios require money. If you have all of your money going towards your retirement account and nothing on the non-retirement side, nothing on the non-qualified side that you can access, getting money could be difficult. Getting money out of qualified retirement plans could mean that you're going to end up paying tax and pre-distribution penalties because you're younger, right? So for my young clients, again, the hierarchy, you want to get that minimum employer match, then you can consider potentially, do I max that out or do I put money towards a non-qualified? And for a lot of people, that non-qualified can make a lot of sense. Especially if you know, as you were saying, you're going to have changes, life changes coming up. Absolutely. And this is a conversation I have with all of my clients when we're working on their financial flow chart. What, what are your liquidity needs? What, what are the big expenses that might be coming up or, or expected? Are, are, you, are you planning on having children? Is there a wedding coming up? Is there a big house move right. uh, in the future? You know, and if these things are part of the conversation in the shorter term, you know, one to five years, then probably we're going to take that extra dollar. And instead of maxing out the retirement, then perhaps we'll put it on the non-qualified side so that we can access it, so that we can use it. Because down the line, that need will shift. Once you have the house and the family and everything else like that is covered, there's no huge expenses coming up, then we might shut off the spigot, so to to speak, and move those non-qualified investments back into the retirement plan and really start pounding that. The key here is as you get older, we want to make sure that you're on track for the retirement plan. And so, you know, once all those early stage, early in life, big expenses are covered, then your needs and your goals and your wants shift. And so that's when we might explore then at that point, maxing out the retirement plan. So again, there's there's different schools of thought on this. It's my opinion that it could make sense to go either way. And, and this is obviously a discussion we have with our clients before they make that decision. Now, you keep saying young professionals, young professionals, and you were talking about debt. Tell me how you view college debt. So that's the next bucket, right? Oh, okay. So you beat me to it. So, <laughs> so when, when, well, let me take a spe- step back. If you're talking about existing college debt, right? You're referring to, you know, when I went to college, I had to take out debt and you're, you're paying that student loan off. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, a lot of times those interest rates are, are either on the low side or the moderate side, and you would follow the same guidelines that we've talked about. If it's low or moderate, pay the minimum and consider adding money to something else. Okay. However, you know, I have ran into college debt where you know, you're in that seven, eight, nine range. The first thing we would talk about is potentially looking to consolidate or to refinance it if that's a, if that's a possibility, depending on cash flow and budget and that sort of thing. But if it's not, then you just treat that college debt as if it's a high interest debt, right? As if it's almost like a credit card and you use the snowball payoff method. Okay. So, so great question. Debt is debt, in my opinion. It doesn't matter if it's for college, a credit card, your car, or your home. It just matters what the interest rate is. Okay. Now, with regards to college savings for per- perhaps a child or something like that, that's this next bucket. So once you have filled 
your, I'll call it your secondary investment bucket, whether that's putting money into a non, non-qualified account or maxing out your retirement savings, you, you still have a discretionary dollar to put away somewhere. Then you start looking at, you know, I'll call it the, the second pillar type of investments. College savings would be one of those putting money away for your your children or your grandchildren, something like that, that, that makes sense. A lot of people ask, well, why wouldn't that be higher in the hierarchy? And I get it. You know, It's an honorable thing to be able and, and to have this goal to pay for your children's education. But guess what? They have their entire life to pay for it. And at this stage in the game, you only have X amount of years left to work and to pay for your retirement. So it never makes sense ever for a client to jeopardize their retirement for their children's college education. So that's very important, right? Okay. A lot of people yeah. will rather put a dollar into their 529 plans for their kids versus putting it into their retirement account. And it just doesn't make sense. The math doesn't work. So this college savings is kind of lower on the lower in the financial flowchart tier. Okay. Right. On that same level would be insurance. This hmm. is something I talk about with all of my clients. And there's different insurable interests, it's called. When you're younger, young family, perhaps debt, your insurable interest is, well, what happens? How do I protect myself if I were to pass away early? You want to make sure that you cover loss of income or debt or, or you know, raising the children, things like that. As you get older, your insurable interest shifts. And the reason is because your, your kids might be older, they might be grown, they might be on their own. Theoretically, your debt is lower, it's paid off, you've accumulated some retirement funds. And so your insurable interest is no longer what happens if I die early, it's what happens if I live too long, right? What happens if I live so long that I outlive my money? And or what happens if I get sick? Yes. Right. Or I go into a long-term care type of facility. That insurable interest is now covered by something, whether it's a a universal life policy that lasts forever or, or a long-term care policy, or, you know, I use a lot of the hybrid products to kind of cover both needs. So your insurable interest shift over your lifetime. And this discretionary dollar that has kind of flowed through all these various tiers of the financial flow chart, that's that dollar that's going to pay for this. That's the the dollar that's going to pay for these needs. Because again, if you can't cover all those other items, you probably don't have enough dollars to pay for insurance. I, I, I do see that occasionally where insurance is so high on the list that you can't pay for your other basic necessities. And that just, that just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. You don't want to jeopardize your monthly cash flow to pay for insurance. Mm-hmm. Got it. Also in that same tier, again, college savings, insurance, you can also throw in that low interest debt into this category. So again, we've, we've paid off the high interest debt. We've considered paying off the moderate debt. If we have done that and we still have extra money laying around that we want to invest or spend or, or put to somewhere you know, responsibly, all right, now you can consider paying off that low interest debt, whether that's paying extra payments or just being, you know, just paying it off all in one fell swoop. We, we would talk about that with a client, but that is also in this lower tier. And then finally, if you still have extra money, this is a good problem to have, right? This dollar has flowed through all of this very, in the various tiers of your financial flow chart. All the buckets are full. You've maxed out the retirement plans. You've, you've maxed out your college savings plans. You have a, a healthy amount in non-qualified monies and investments. You've paid off all your debt. You still have money left over. You know That's when you can start to consider gifting. Okay, right. That's kind of okay. usually the last tier. It usually doesn't come into play until you're a little bit older, perhaps in, in retirement or, or close to it. 
that's when you can start to consider giving the money away. Nice. Okay. And, and that is whether that's to family or charity or institutions that you, you are fond of, whatever it happens to be, that gifting strategy, that's kind of the last tier. So as you can see here, you know, it, it's, it's literally like a pyramid of water filling up buckets and just slowly overflowing into the next one. The highest priority is at the top. As you fill that bucket, you just slowly move down to the next one. It's again, every situation is unique. Every circumstance is different. However, the, the basic concept of this, the basic strategy, it's important to understand because it, it's, it's pretty universal for just about everyone. There are certain twists and turns that we can take and discuss based off of the client's unique situation. But in, in general, this is you know, the, the order in which you want to use those discretionary dollars. So, Mike, you've been talking budgets, debt, emergency accounts, retirement, insurance, gifting. This is all, these are all tiers in your, your financial flow chart. How can someone reach you if they want to go over their flow chart? To your point, Patrice, there there are so many components to this. Just like there are so many components to just a basic wealth plan. And and to that effect, there's so many different products and investments and strategies that are out there that it's just simply in your best interest to engage with a financial advisor before you try to do it on your own. And, And so that said, if you or a loved one need some help or some guidance or want to talk about this financial flow chart with regards to your own specific situation, feel free to reach out. You can call me by dialing 724-933-4446. You can email me at michael.dukovich at rbc.com, and it's D-U-K-O-V-I-C-H. Or you can visit my website at michaeldukovich.com. And on my website, you'll find a ton of valuable information on, on a wide range of financial topics, right? Because after all, my goal is to educate and to inform and to be top of mind for if and when questions come up down the line. Remember, I'm looking to work with people that understand that you shouldn't be doing it alone. People who value the plan and people that recognize that life's greatest returns are only realized when you invest beyond your money. So remember, it's your money, it's your life, take control. And to stay on top of new episodes of Mike's Beyond Your Money podcast, please use the subscribe button on this page. You can also share with the share button. I'm Patrice Sikora, and let's talk again later. Thank you for listening to the Beyond Your Money podcast with financial advisor Mike Dukovich. Make sure you click the subscribe button now so you'll be notified when new podcasts are released. If you want to know more about working with Mike, please call 724 933 4446 or visit michaeldukovich.com it's your money it's your life take control the information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of rbc wealth management financial all opinions and estimates constitute the speaker's judgment as of the date of this recording and are subject to change without notice and are provided in good faith but without legal responsibility. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial services provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. RBC Wealth Management does not provide tax or legal advice. All decisions regarding the tax or legal implications of your investment should be made in connection with your independent tax or legal advisor. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. 
It is not possible to invest directly in an index. Investment and insurance products offered through RBC Wealth Management are not insured by the FDIC or any other federal government agency, are not deposits or other obligations of or guaranteed by a bank or any bank affiliate, and are subject to investment risks, including the possible loss of the principal amount invested. RBC Wealth Management is a division of RBC Capital Markets, LLC, member NYSE, FINR, and SIPC.